Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Well, brothers and sisters, we are this evening, at least it's my intention this evening, to, by God's grace, bring what we began last week to a close. That is, the section that we began last week from verses 19 through 21, I intend this evening to bring that section to a close. Now, we know that that comes off the back of the first 18 verses of John chapter 10, those verses that speak so beautifully from the mouth of our Lord, that discourse of the, of the good shepherd articulating the sublime truths of what it is for him to be the good shepherd, that the Son of God would become man and, and dwell among his people in order to lay down his life. He lays it down and he's the one who has authority to take it up again. And he doesn't do that simply because he, 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 he wants to or because the Jews had apprehended him or the Romans crucified him. No, no, not at all. He has come with the intention to lay down his life and then to take it up again because without him laying down his life, his sheep have no life. His sheep have no hope. And this is the plan of God from eternity past that the son would be sent and the son will be sacrificed on behalf of his sheep. Sublime truths indeed. And he's speaking in front of an audience. The Jews, the Apostle John says. And we know already that when he speaks of Jews, most likely he's speaking of the religious leaders of the day. And they're listening to the words of our Lord. And they've heard the exposition of our Lord. They've heard the articulation, the, the words dripping with grace and mercy that, that proceed, that, that came from the first 18 verses. And now the Apostle John finds it fitting to give us the conclusion in the hearts of these men that are before our Lord who are there to hear him speak live, his live audience. The, the Apostle John could quite have simply faithfully narrated the passage, the words of our Lord, and then moved on to the next narrative. He could have done that, but he doesn't. And we need to take note, beloved. Because more often than not, the Apostle John sees it fitting that when Jesus has a discourse, when he speaks to a live audience, whether it's a monologue or it's a dialogue with the audience, the Apostle John more often than not tells us under inspiration of the Spirit of God, what the response was from his listeners. What their conclusion was. What they were resolved to think or to act after the Lord had finished teaching. And beloved, he does that for a reason. When Christ opens his mouth, beloved, whether in the first century before a live audience, or whether it is like you and I this evening, opening his word and reading the words that have been canonized for us by the Spirit of God, or the 2,000 years that up until this point were generations of Christians and who have opened God's word and have read the words of Christ, it matters not. 
Jesus never spoke merely to disseminate information. He never merely spoke to just give knowledge for the sake of knowledge. He never spoke to entertain. Every word that came out of the mouth of our Lord was was particular and was intentional. The Father had sent the Son and has given the Son a purpose, a word, a commandment, everything to say and everything to speak according to John chapter 12. When Jesus opened his mouth to speak, he spoke from the authority of God himself. The Father had sent the Son and when Jesus opened his mouth, he spoke authoritatively on behalf of God. Jesus' words were indeed the words of God. And as the Son of God, speaking the words of God, he demanded a response. He demanded a response from everyone who heard his word. Now we saw last week that his, that his word divides, it reveals, it's, it convicts when we went through and considered the contents of verse 19. For those who hear the word, beloved, they become immediately accountable to God as to how they receive the word. How they receive the light from the mouth of our Lord. You see, one may listen, and we have experience in this, and they did also in the first century. One may listen to a, a, a different level of, or different types of orators and public speakers and philosophers that, that would speak with, with convincing power, right? And it may be that one sits before this public speaker and, and benefits somewhat of what they said, but later on, if in a day or a week or a month, they forget it is okay. That doesn't matter. But Jesus and his words, oh beloved, he's in another category upon his own. He comes in the name of the only true God. He's the Son of God. And his words are a summons on behalf of the King of the universe. And his word demand a response from his hearers. One way or the other. The God of the universe has given a command, not a recommendation. Jesus doesn't speak recommendation. He doesn't give merely advice to people to follow if they wish. Because when the Father sent the Son, the Father gave a command to everyone who listens, who everyone who listens, whose, whose ears hear the words of the Son, and that is to listen to Him. Remember, in the time of the baptism of Christ, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then later on in Transfiguration, he says the same words, listen to him. Believe upon him. The moment that Jesus speaks and his words reach the ears of his hearers, there is no unhearing them. Immediately one becomes accountable to what they do with the words of Christ. There are really only two responses. There's no middle ground. Either one recognizes the truth, either one recognizes the authority for which he speaks and recognizes this is indeed the Son of God speaking the truth of God and renders the only rightful response, and that is a response of believing in his words, a response of submitting to his word, and a response of obeying his word. Or one can go the other direction and flippantly and foolishly reject 
his word. And in doing so, committing a, a damnable crime. What crime, you may ask? Well, I said earlier, he comes in the name of the, un- of the sovereign of the universe. Beloved brothers and sisters, that crime is the crime of treason against the king of the universe. It is a very, very scary thing to hear his words, to be exposed to his teaching, to listen to his claims, and then foolishly shrug off what he says. Every word he speaks, every word he speaks, and his hearers listen to, they will be accountable to it all. Because he comes in the name of the Father. He comes in the name of God, with the authority of God, and God does not speak frivolously. There's no idle words in the mouth of God. And Christ never spoke an idle word. And when he spoke, he demanded a response. And I believe the Apostle John gives us those responses as we work our way through the narratives for that reason. Because he's trying to communicate to us, I believe. And he's communicating to us when Jesus speaks, he demands a response. You either fall on one side in belief or you fall on the other in unbelief. Now last week, Together we considered verse 19. But the word of our Lord divides. Now, if you remember the exposition of the word, was not so much speaking about the division that took place among the Jews, right? We, we see that and t- today, t- this afternoon, by God's grace, I, I intend to, to unpack verses 20 and 21. But last week, more so, I, was, I wanted to show the divide, the, the word of, of Christ, the word of God, as, as a, a divider or, or, or the very word that pieces the, the soul and reveals what is the contents of man's soul. You remember, I said that his word is like a double-edged sword coming out of his, out of his mouth. And we went to the book of Revelation to see this is indeed how he's described there. And his word judges the very core of man's heart and man's soul. Now this evening I intend to, to see the manifestation of that heart, of the, 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 the conclusions of the hearts of the people who are before our Lord. It all begins in here, right? Our Lord taught that. It all begins in the heart. And what we do is just a manifestation of, of, what, is, of what is here. So this evening, I just want to take some time to examine the response by these Jews, mainly, I'd say, according to how John writes, the religious leaders of the day who'd listened to Christ's teaching in the contents of chapter 10. And I want us to see, beloved, that there was no neutral ground. As I said earlier, The responses have to be one way or the other. And Jesus himself said so. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me, if you're not on my side, you scatter. You're against me actively scattering. So when Jesus opens his mouth, one either believes, submits, and obeys, or one refuses him, and by refusing him, you're declaring war against God of the universe. And believe me, brothers and sisters, that's a war 
that no one can win. So let's not take another look at the text that is before us. Let's begin from verse 19 for context. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? A fracture is happening. Actually, it's increasing. We've seen the fracture beginning earlier in earlier chapters, but it's widening. A division is happening now amongst the religious leaders of the day. And the Apostle John tells us many, many said that he has a demon. He is insane. That is a great number, depictive of probably the majority of the people were opposing the words of our Lord. Not so politely either. It's not as though they... They thanked the Lord for giving us his teaching and his opinion, thank you, but we've chosen to go another path. That's not what's happening here. It's an active assault at Christ. It's an active assault at his word and what he's claiming. Over and again, Jesus has has spoken to the crowd. Over and again, he said, I come in the authority of the Father. There is one who has sent me and it's the Father. I come in his authority. I speak his words. I, I perform his works. You remember? I do the works of the Father and only the works of the Father in John chapter 5. In other words, his teaching is from heaven. That is the declaration of our Lord to his audience. Oh, no, you don't say many. We'll give you this much. We agree that you don't speak or act alone. We agree that you're not doing your own bidding. We agree that you come in the authority of another. We'll give you that much, Jesus. However, the authority is not from above as you claim, but from below. You're doing the bidding, Jesus, for the realm of darkness. We've concluded, Jesus, that you have an evil and wicked spirit within you. You're doing the bidding for Satan himself. Beloved, it's not the first time we hear words similar to this. Right? We've been working our way through this gospel for several years now. In previous chapters, we've seen even possibly no more than the last few weeks, which is the contents from chapter 7 through to now when Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And when he first comes there halfway through the feast, you remember in chapter 7 that many concluded that he has a demon. Or in the very next chapter, in chapter 8, when Jesus also speaks the, the wonderful and glorious truths that he, that he spoke to the, the crowd, telling him them that he is the light of the world. You remember what they said? They said, is it? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Just about the two worst things you can say to a first century Jew. We've heard it before. We've heard it before. But beloved, may it not become commonplace to our hearts. 
Just because we've heard this narrative and we've heard the accusations against our, our Lord that he, he's demon-possessed, that he has an evil spirit, that he's overtaken by a demon. May it never be that these, this chilling response at the mouth of these men ceases to move our very being. This is the Son of Glory. This is the Son of God. This is the one in whom there is absolutely no sin. The one who has no beginning and no end. The one who created all things. The one for which all things are created for. And in whom it's all sustained. The glorious Son of God. The Holy One. The Righteous One. The Messiah. And they open their mouth to the light of the world. The one who is the epitome of the truth, or truth and everything that is good. And they accuse him of being a pawn for the power of darkness. His words, his works, attributed to the demonic. You remember back in chapter, chapter 8, Jesus tells these people, their father is the devil. He's the father of lies. He's the murderer from the beginning. You can almost hear him say in the crowd, Jesus, you said that we were the ones under the influence of the devil. But we've concluded it's not us who, he, who are his minions, but you are. By definition, if Jesus comes in the name of God, if he speaks the word of God. What does that mean? That means these people are rejecting the word of God, the only word that can bestow life. So what do they do with the words of our Lord when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John eight fifty one. They're declaring in almost as many words, Jesus, we don't believe you. A big gamble to take, isn't it? So my question at this point is, how can someone get it so wrong? How can someone or a group of people be so wrong about Christ? Have you ever asked yourself that question as you read through the Gospels and, and seen the evidences and the, and the power and the miracles and the, and the words and the mercy and the grace spoken from the mouth of our Lord? Have you ever sat back and said, how could they treat him this way? How can they accuse him like this? How can they reject him like this? Now, there are things that are plausible in our minds. There are differences that we can accept, mistakes ones can make, that we can say, okay, I, I get it. If you call a mandarin an orange, okay, I get it. I've made that mistake before. It's the same color and approximately the same shape. If you call a, an alligator a crocodile, okay, I get it. A prawn, a shrimp, we get it. And if you're, if you're quite paranoid of the outdoors and, and you might be walking out there and you see a, a stick, a little brown stick that, that looks like a snake and you call it a snake, okay, I get it. It's not a snake, but you thought it was. I get it. That mistake, I understand. But how can we understand this? How can we understand when, when these men accuse the Lord, the one who is the light of the world, of darkness? The one who speaks truth to be a liar. The one who's from above, as though he's from below. How do we understand? How do we understand 
them accusing the God in flesh for a minion of Satan. The only explanation, beloved, is this. It's the real deception caused by spiritual blindness. How else can we explain the words of our Lord? The words that are so dripping with grace and mercy and love and truth. How can we explain the good news of the gospel? By definition, it's good news for sinners. How else can we explain when Christ opens his mouth with the good news? That they receive it as repulsive and insulting and evil to their sensibilities. Spiritual blindness. The Apostle Paul had something to say about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You may remember the passage. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The result of this type of blindness, a life steeped in deception, is confusion. It's disorientation. It's, it's, a, it's a muddled view of reality. One may have a compass in their hand, but they're unable to see where that needle points. So therefore, they walk around and true north is wherever they go, according to their feelings, according to their emotions, according to what their friends are doing, because they cannot see that, they cannot see that needle that always points in that one direction. They cannot see it. It's not a new condition though, beloved. You know this. I'm preaching to the choir. I know you know this. It's an old one. And it's one that's well articulated by Isaiah. How there is a people who are unable to differentiate between light and darkness, good from evil, that which is righteous from that which is wicked. You remember the text? In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, you don't, have to pop, you don't have to go there, but it speaks well of what's going on here before us in John chapter 10. There the prophet writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who, 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 to, the, who to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And in a few verses time, speaking about the same people, he goes on to say, they have rejected the law of God of hosts, and I want you to hear this point, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Back to John chapter 10 verse 19, where this division was first told of us, we were told there was again a division among the Jews because of of these words. The Holy One of Israel is now among them. The eternal God is now among them. Now we understand 2700 years ago, or about 700 years ago, for these people, when that prophecy of Isaiah was written back then, that was written through a prophet, and he was the mouthpiece of God. But they didn't have anyone tangible before them claiming that he is the Son of God. 
But now we have here in the first century, before these Jews, one who stands before them and he says, I am God incarnate. Before Abraham was, I am. I speak with the authority of God. God is the one. God the Father sent me. And God the Father and I, we are one. And he stands before them. Has his physical presence made a difference in the heart of, the, of this man, of these men? Has his physical presence made a difference in so far as, as their, their spiritual blindness that is found in the very essence of the soul? Has it made a difference? No, he hasn't. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he stands before them. And we see this type, this level of confusion, of disorientation, where they call good evil and evil good. Beloved, it's so clear that the more a society rejects the light of God, the more a society rejects the word of God, which is the truth of God, the greater the darkness the greater the confusion, the more warped the moral compass becomes. Is that not what we see in our world today? The world that's kicked God out of our government, out of our communities, a world that has kicked God out of our schools, a world that has kicked God out of our universities and I'm afraid to say it's a world that has kicked God out of some of our churches. To the point, if you and I were to take an exam based on the world's moral compass, that is, what the world sees as good and upright and righteous and what the world sees as unrighteous and sinful, I would hazard to say with a level of confidence that most, if not all of us in this room, will fail that test. Because if we submit to what is written in this book, then we'll quickly find out that the world and the system of the world is antithetical to what is written in this book. I had prepared some examples to give, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to bring them up. But it will suffice to say that I know that beloved brothers and sisters, you all have a beating heart and you all have functioning eyes. It doesn't take much looking around to come up with examples of your own to the level of immorality and that immorality is called righteousness. It's the confusion sin. It's the blindness of sin. As Christians, especially if we've been Christians or in the Lord for some time, we find it hard to believe how one could be or group of people could be so ignorant of the truth as we have before us here in John chapter 10. But beloved, it's right now that I need to remind you that we were no different lest we become proud to think we are better than the rest. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, you are, I am, no different. 
but by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We once walked following the course of this world according to the passions of our flesh. If it weren't for the grace of God that invaded us, when we weren't looking by the way, when we weren't seeking by the way, he invaded our lives and gave us light where there was no light, we would be absolutely no different. We have no room for boasting. No room for boasting. And when we look back, it is not until we've actually been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, the kingdom of light, that we're able to look back in absolute terror and say, that was me. When we were there, we couldn't see it. That was me. You can point the finger at the depravity that was so prevalent in Isaiah's day in 2,700 years ago or thereabouts. We can point our finger back in the day, uh, in in Christ's day, when, when they were calling good evil and evil good who was among them. And we can put our finger to those in our day as we look out inside the world and say, what level of depravity? How can they not see better? But we need to be humbled. Because as I said, we would be no different apart from His grace. Apart from His grace. Because I too called evil good and good evil. I too was confused because of the spiritual blindness before the Lord saved me. I too called down, up and up, down, but by the grace of God. Beloved, you know, I don't often give many illustrations, but let me tell you this, and I pray that it will help. The Lord saved me when I was quite young, and I'm very grateful for that. Some of us, well, some of us who, who had come to know the Lord who were united in Him by faith, you're saved at different stages of your life. Some of you were quite young and some maybe at adulthood and different levels before the Lord saved you. So there's different experiences among us. But I was saved quite young and I'm unable to remember a point. I want to say this tentatively. I'm unable to remember a point where my moral compass was as warped as seeing good for evil and evil for good. Now, now be careful. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that my moral compass points perfectly north. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is because the Lord saved me as a as a young person and opened my eyes by His grace and gave me a faith to apprehend His word and to recognize His word is truth and recognize that truth incarnate is Christ Himself and to recognize that the eyes have been opened and now I'm able to see the world for what it is. It doesn't mean there is no sin. There is, but when one, when I sin, I'm able to recognize that it is offensive to God, that it's not okay, it is not righteous, it is not good. But the allurement of the flesh, no excuse. So having said that, and by the grace of God, As I said earlier, I I don't remember a time, not that our experience makes for anything. The Word of God speaks, and it's clearly, and it's sufficient. But I do remember an experience I had when I was younger. And I didn't understand, I didn't understand what I'm about to tell you now until I meditated upon the experience years after it took place. And I think it'll help us understand the confusion of the spiritual blindness that is experienced by these people. Help me understand it. 
You see, when I was, when I was young, a very young teenager, we lived about five minutes away from the ocean, the beach. And I loved the water, loved to swim. In fact, swimming in the ocean was a daily occurrence for my brother and I. And we used to love to go not only to swim, but to catch waves. We used to like to catch waves on our bodies, and we used to love the bigger the wave, the better. And it came to a point where we began to really hunger for the thrill of that big wave. We, we, we loved it. And, and, and the ocean is a scary place, we all agree. It's got a lot of power. But the more you dip yourself into the ocean, the, the less fearful you become of it. I guess that's complacency. So we were looking for the big waves. When bad weather would come, when cyclones would come, maybe once or twice a year, most people who have their heads screwed on properly, they go away from the ocean, they head in the other direction. My brother and I used to head towards the beach because we were looking for that big wave. And I remember at one point, there was a, a, a bad weather, and I think it might have been a cyclone, I don't remember exactly, that went over the coastline of where we were and we did head to the water and we decided let's go in. Now the, the water was for the most part empty. It was crazy, the, the waves, the surf was incredibly big, very big waves. And you'd be almost crazy to get in at that point in time, but we did and we, we started together, my brother and I, and because of the rip and the current, it wasn't long before we were separated. I, I didn't know where it was for, I don't know how long. And I was swimming and swimming and swimming with all my energy Swimming, swim, because what I, my goal was, was to go, go out into the, the water before the breaks were taking place, the clear water, because those waves were just pounding and pounding and pounding. And what seemed like half an hour to 40 minutes of constant swimming, and many cramps later, I found myself barely clearing the, the breaks of the wave. And in that water, where the waves were, were just about to close, in a place where I'm, about, I'm, I'm able to catch that, that big wave that I've been waiting for. And beloved, it was barely that I made it there. Completely, almost exhausted when I saw this monster coming before me. A very big wave coming before me. I had a, a, a decision to make. I either catch it, and that's the very reason why I'm out here in the first place, and here I am drifting down the coastline, or I go over it and wait for the next one and catch my breath. I took the wrong decision. I thought, I'll catch that wave. So quickly, I went to prepare myself to turn around and catch that wave. When it picked me up, and I wasn't ready for this. This is a, a very big, several meters high. It picked me up and it pounded me like I've never been dumped before. And it pushed me deep. This is deep water. It pushed me deep in the water. And I felt like I was in a washing machine, tumbling and tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. My eyes were open, but I couldn't see a thing. The water was that murky. I couldn't see a single thing. But I'm here I am in the midst of the water. I'm out of breath. I knew. I'm exhausted. If I don't go to the surface, I'm dead. I know I'll die, but that day I didn't want to die. So I began, so I began, I began to swim. I, I, need, I need to find that surface with every energy I had. I need to find that surface. So I began to swim to, to, to find the surface of the, of the ocean. And I thought I was there and I kept going and kept going. And finally I made it to the surface. But the problem was I couldn't break the surface because it was solid. And then I realized I wasn't swimming up. I was swimming down. I was that disorientated, that confused by the dumping of the wave that I was actually swimming down thinking I was swimming up. 
had enough presence of mind to bounce myself off the, off, the, off the sand and find myself to the surface, take that big breath of air, and you guessed that I wasn't out there very much longer. I thought I was swimming up. I thought life was, was that way. I, 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 thought, I thought that's direction I was taking because that's where I get my breath. That's where I continue living. Instead, I was swimming down and I didn't know it. The blindness, spiritual blindness that caused good, evil and evil, good up, down and down up. Beloved, I could have been anywhere that day, but I chose over my, on my own volition to make it out there. I knew the dangers. I knew how silly it was to go out there when the, when the winds were blowing and the, and the waves were as big and the danger was lurking before me. But I had a desire to be out there. I'm culpable. Whatever happened to me that, that day, I am absolutely culpable for whatever comes my way. I made that decision. I had a desire to be out there. And so it is with those who choose darkness over light. The Lord is sovereign over salvation. He's the one who opens eyes. He's the one who gives regeneration. He's the one that saves souls. He's the one that does it all. Yes, but beloved brothers and sisters, those who are dwelling and basking in sin, they choose that sin. They wouldn't have any other way unless the Lord opens their eyes. They wouldn't have any other way. So they're culpable of their own sin. I was culpable of my own sin. You were culpable of your own sin. Apart from the intervention of God, you would not have chosen Him. You wouldn't have known about Him. You enjoyed that lifestyle. You loved that lifestyle. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 3. I've referenced it before, but let me give it to you again. He says, And this is judgment, that the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. light. Excuse me, light. Lest his works should be exposed. The sinful nature does have a dominating effect. It does have a binding effect. It has a prisoning effect upon a sinful man or a woman. It does, absolutely. But, beloved, the Bible is very clear that a sinner loves his sin and he wouldn't change it for the world. And because of that, there's mass confusion and the darker the more rebellion the more rejection of of the lord and his word the more confusion we see thus we see what is happening in our world today he has a demon they say and he's insane why listen to him savior of the world world the one who, who has the words of eternal life just thrown away just like that. That's how strong the grip the evil one has on them. And they say about Christ, 
Rather than seeing the blindness and the, and the evil of the heart, they, they say, Christ, you're the one who's demon-possessed. And, and that, that possession of yours, that given over to the evil spirit, has caused you to become insane. So what comes out of your mouth is nonsense, Jesus. It's a raving, you're a raving madman. You're out of your mind. They are actually synonyms for the word that's been translated insane. In fact... The word insane that is found before us is only found five times in the New Testament. Five times. Once here, it's translated insane. The other four times, it's translated out of your mind. Out of your mind. First Corinthians 14. When, when, when the Apostle Paul was speaking to the church in Corinth there, and in the early, in the early church, when the gift of tongues was still in operation, he says, if someone comes in and you're speaking in tongues, and this person doesn't understand the tongue you're speaking, will they not think you're out of your mind? Second occurrence in Acts chapter 12, you remember, where James had just been beheaded by the evil king Agrippa I, and then he captures Peter, puts him in prison, and he and Peter's fate is very likely going to be that of James, and the people and the brethren are praying there at John Mark's home, and the Lord opens the prison doors, and, and Peter comes out, and, and he meets with the brethren, and, and that servant girl, the young servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, and she's so surprised that Peter is at the door, forgets to open the gate. Goes back in and tells the brethren what they say. You wrote a girl, you are out of your, you're out of your mind. It's not possible. Agrippa the second, the first is going to kill Peter. There's no way he'd release him at this time of night. It's not happening. We would rather believe it's an angel than to believe Peter. You are out of your mind. The last two occurrences happen in Acts chapter 26. You may remember King Agrippa II and Festus, the governor, then. And Paul stands before them and after proclaiming the good news of the gospel and then going on to say that it was necessary for Christ to rise from the dead so that he will proclaim that we will proclaim the light of Christ to both Jews and Gentiles. Festus interrupts him and says, Paul, your great learning has driven you out of your mind. In other words, you filled up with so much knowledge, Paul. So much information. It's all jumbled in your brain now. And what comes out of your mouth is absolutely nonsense. It is meaningless. It's useless, John or Paul. Absolutely useless. You are out of your mind. And of course, the fourth occurrence is Paul saying, I'm not out of my mind. I know what I speak. So too, here in chapter 10, Jesus, what comes out of your mouth is nonsense. You speak as an irrational, satanic babbler. And then naturally what comes next? Why listen to him? Just to cap it off. You have a demon? You're insane? Why listen to him? It is a question. You have a question mark in your Bibles. But I don't believe it's a sincere question. No, I, don't. I think it's a rhetorical question. I think these Jews have already made up their mind. Why listen to him? He has nothing meaningful to say. He's a man who's out of his mind. He's a man who's demon-possessed. Why why waste your time with such a person? Isn't that horrible? You remember, you remember the demon-possessed man by the name of Legion that we know of? Possibly in Matthew chapter 8. But he's there in, 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 in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. 
We're told that this man had many demons. Remember, they're accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. He lived out there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee amongst the tombs, and the only audience he had was other demon-possessed people, if there were people among him. If he is the same man, I think he is in Matthew chapter 8, then there was another person with him who was also demon-possessed. But we're told he would cry out, always cry out. No one paid attention to him. Why would you pay attention to a man that's lost his brain, a man who's been given over by an evil spirit? That's what they're likening our Lord to. It's interesting that when the Lord actually saved this man, Legion, and cast out the demons, that he was all dressed up, and the narrative tells us, and he said among the people in his right mind. He was out of his mind, but now he's in his right mind. Now the Jews are not saying, you're like Legion, after. They're saying you're like him before. When he's still under the impression, under the oppression, of the demon. The Jews were heavyweights in this day. And they weren't simply making a decision that only affected themselves by crying out, why? Why listen to him? They're using their influence. So the others who are listening would also turn their backs upon this Jesus. They were using their sway. He's demon. He has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? To influence and to intimidate others to reject him. This is active opposition. It reminds you of the words of our Lord that I mentioned just before. Whoever is not, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever is, does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral ground. You're either gathering with Christ or you're working against him, scattering what, or trying at least, to scatter what he gathers. But I love this, beloved. I love what comes next. But with all the darkness, all the intimidating tactics of, of the religious leaders of the day, all the hatred, all the horrible accusations against our Lord, which certainly would have scared many people among them. The lay person would have been out of his mind. You didn't want to go against these Jews, right? Because they knew how much pain they can inflict on you. You don't have to go very far. Previous chapter, the man who was made, well, the blind man, you remember, they kicked him out of the, the synagogue. You remember what I said about that. That's practically a death blow in this first century, people. You didn't want that. You you didn't want to go against the Jews, the religious establishment of the day. It was very difficult to go against them. They had sway. They had power in the community. But I love this. Despite the darkness, the light still gets through. But others said, maybe they're the minority. Yes, I'll give you that much. Some light got through. The darkness cannot stop the light from getting through. The darkness is no match for the gospel. Do you know why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. No matter how thick and dense the darkness is, when the light comes, it penetrates the darkness. And in a very dark time of human history, we hear, but others said... I love that. These are not the words of one, verse 21, of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind, they say? I, I, can't, I can't tell. I can't tell whether they came to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
I, can't, I can't tell with these words. You need to believe more than what they confess, right? You need to know more than, than this, is, this is not the words. Well, practically what they're saying is that these aren't the words of a demon-possessed man, nor are these the works of a demon-possessed man. You can, you can say that and still not be a believer. So I can't tell from the, ta- the passage whether they do indeed come to faith. But there is no doubt... No doubt that they were exposed to the same teaching, to the same word, to the same environment as their colleagues. And their colleagues went one way and they went another. It seems to me that this is the beginning of the drawing of the Father by his Spirit that Jesus speaks of in John 8, 44. No one comes unto me unless the Father draws them unto me. This is only a suspicion, I can't be sure, but I think that last verse in John chapter 10 that speaks, and many believed in him in that place, I suspect maybe some of these people were part of that. I don't know. But I do know this. All truth comes from God. All truth comes from God. And if that truth finds its way into the heart, then only he is able to do it. Only he's able to break through the darkness. Only he's able to break through the sinful nature. Only he's able to break the bondage of sin. Only he's able to bring light where there was darkness, to break the spiritual blindness and give sight. Give sight to the blind. These aren't the words of a man oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? These aren't the works of a man oppressed by a demon. I know my colleagues are saying one way, and I know I'm going to be ostracized, but I'm going to stand up with courage and say, no, I'm not going down that path. Who gives that sort of courage? I can't agree with you. I I can't agree with you. These are not the actions of a demoniac. These are not the words of a demoniac. I do truly believe that this is the beginning of the work of the Spirit. Beloved, there's so much I can say about this. But I'm going to, I want to move on. Because a lot of what I would say here, I'm going to address as we get further in John chapter 10. But I don't, I want to bring, I want to bring this sermon to a close. But I want to bring it in the close by taking you back, by taking you back to what I believe was a rhetorical question in the mouth of the accusing Jews, you know, the ones that said to Jesus, you have a demon, he's insane. And then they said, why listen to him? Now, I believe they asked it rhetorically, but I want to ask it to you unrhetorically. I looked up the antonym of rhetorical, and what I came up with, I... It didn't make sense to me. So I'm going to use that word, unrhetorical. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Bear with my bad grammar. So unrhetorically. Everyone here, everyone within the boundaries of the sound of my voice, you have to answer this question. There is no greater matter. There's no matter of more urgency. There's no matter of more importance. There's nothing that you have in your life that is more pertinent to the answer to this question. Why listen to him? Why listen to him? 
Beloved, we are reminded that the world's moral compass is different to yours. The world's teaching is different to that of Christ and the word of Christ. It is different. So then, therefore, whether you're aware of it or not, the system of the world that we live in cries out every day and it compels you. Why are you listening to this antiquated Jesus? Why do you still hold to the word that is the Bible? Why haven't you become more modernized? You must have an answer. And that answer has to go beyond here. That answer needs to be here. Beloved, if you don't have the right answer to that question, if that answer is not secure in the very pit of your soul, actually in a place that you cannot even access, then it would be so easy in a matter of time that the tidal pull of the world will drag you and you'll find yourself swimming and swimming and swimming only to find yourself swimming in the wrong direction. Why listen to him? Because he's a miracle worker. True, but that's the wrong answer. Why listen to him? Because he's a great teacher. No one spoke like him. The scribes and the Pharisees, they never taught like him. That is true, but that is the wrong answer. Why listen to him? Because he's so loving and gentle and meek and, and, and kind and mild. True again, but that is the wrong answer. Why listen to him? He's done so many acts of goodness. I read the Gospels, and he's done so much good. He's such a good example to follow. Yes, he is. But that's the wrong answer. Why do you listen to him? Because the people in the church I go to are so nice to be around. I hope that's true, but that is the wrong answer. Why do you listen to him? Because my father listens to him. My mother listens to him, my wife, my husband, my brother, my sister, my friends. They all listen to him. I can tell you, if that's you, you're hanging around the right people. But that's still the wrong answer. But all of the above are true. But although that is true, that will not prevent you from being sucked in, under, and encapsulated by the world. Caught up in the deceitfulness of the world that, that promotes a lie and masquerades as righteousness. Having you declare what is evil is good and good what is evil and being proud to do so. Why listen to him? We've got to have the right answer. We've got to believe our, our answer needs to be rooted in truth and the truth that the Lord has given us. Beloved, there's so many places I can take you in Scripture that will answer that question faithfully from the lips of our Lord Himself. But I'm going to take you to familiar ground because I believe by taking you to familiar ground, we're, we're hitting that now even further and further in because it's important that we have Scripture abide in our hearts. The truth of God's word needs to be abiding in our hearts. Why listen to him? We sang it earlier on in the second song. It's a scripture that I've referenced so many times, but it articulates so well what I'm trying to portray. And it's found in John chapter 6. 
Do you remember the story? Jesus had finished feeding the 5,000. Gone over the other side, you remember? Gone the other side at the sea, at, at, at the synagogue in Capernaum. The people came over and he began to teach them so many wonderful truths, pointing back to that miracle that took place only the day earlier. And before he knew it, the teaching became difficult to take in, hard to accept. And before you knew it, maybe thousands of people who were following after him turned their back and they go because they drifted back in the tidal pool of the world because his teaching became too difficult. And then Jesus looks upon the twelve and he asks them, are you two going to abandon me? Are my words too hard to bear for you also? And I love the response. I love that response. The response comes from the lips of Simon Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we have believed. And we have believed and have come to know. We have believed. And we have come know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the right answer. But it needs to be your answer. It needs to be my answer. We can't take Peter's answer and say, I'm going to claim it. It needs to be a reality in here. It needs to be a reality. That if you come to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, the Holy One of God, if you've come to believe that He alone has the words of eternal life, that He is the source and the substance of life and is life apart from no life apart from Him, that every door you can open is death and death and death and death, and there is only one door who is Christ, and you can enter that door, and that door is life. That there's only one good shepherd, only one good shepherd that would lead you home to safety and security in the eternal presence of the triune God for eternity in bliss. Only one good shepherd can guarantee that journey for you, and that is Christ. If you've come to believe that he is and he does have the words to eternal life, that means what he says about me is true. That I am a sinner, that I'm in bondage to sin, and the only one that can break that sin is him. Trusting in Him, apprehending Him by faith to break the shackles of sin, to remove the spiritual blindness, to give me ears to hear His sweet voice that calls me by name and says, Child, come, come and follow after me. I'm going to lead you to green pastures. I'm going to give you life and I'm going to give it to you abundantly. Why do you listen to Him? Him? 